If something is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Get 10% off your first month by going to betterhelp.com forward slash brain. That's two words, betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com forward slash brain to get 10% off your first month today. Life presents the toughest challenges. Every day you are faced with decisions that test your ability to express who you really want to be in this world. We're told to keep saying affirmations and keep thinking positively, but what do you do when that stuff doesn't work? Welcome to the Overwhelmed Brain, where you'll learn to make decisions that are right for you so that you can create the life you want now. and welcome to the show. My name is Paul Coliani and I'm here to help you increase your emotional intelligence so that you can avoid dysfunction, handle toxic situations with grace and ease, and show up as your authentic self. Everything I talk about in the show is my personal opinion and is meant for informational and educational purposes only. Always consult a medical or psychological professional before making any changes that could affect your physical or mental health. All right, now that I got that disclaimer out of the way, I want to talk about how people can be critical of you or even abusive toward you and where that abuse or critical behavior comes from. Because I get a lot of messages, a lot about people who feel like they are not worthy. They are not lovable. They are not important or they don't feel important. They don't feel like they are significant in any way because of one or two people in their life that taught them the wrong way. And what I mean by that is that we may have well-meaning or not so well-meaning adults that teach us how to not love ourselves. And they teach us how we're not lovable. They teach us how we're not smart. They may even say we're stupid. So we grow up listening to these people that are supposed to be like our caretakers, our parents, our brothers, our sisters, even our friends, our so-called friends, and the mean bully in school. All these people that have an effect on our lives. And the worst part of it is, is if you're not getting a good support system at home, then no matter where else you go, it compounds, especially if you're being treated badly. And what I mean by that is, If you're not feeling worthy at home, if you're not feeling important at home, especially if you don't feel lovable at home, then no matter what anybody else says outside the home, it is based on how you feel about yourself uh, from that environment. So if you grew up in a dysfunctional environment, then you could have good people and not so good people in your life outside your home that tell you that you're the greatest or you're the worst. When they say you're the greatest, it doesn't land very hard because you have this, these feelings of low self-worth and low self-esteem. And when they say you're the worst, it reinforces how you already feel. And it just doesn't seem to ever have a positive effect. It's nice to hear you're the greatest. It's nice to hear you're so smart and you're so attractive. And I love you so much. You're my favorite person in the world. But how often do we hear that and believe it? Hopefully all the time. (laughs) I really want you to believe this. 
every time you hear something good about yourself. But some of us have these old programs running. Somebody comes along and says, oh my God, you're, you're the greatest. You know, fill in the blank here. You're the best. You're so smart. I can't believe you did that for me. Thank you. I can't believe how well you played that. I can't believe how well you finished that or that project that came through when I needed it. Whatever it is. And they give you a big high five or a big hug or congratulations or even uh, I love you. But if you don't feel it, what do you do with it? Where does it go? What does it mean to you? So these are big questions that, you know, until you've healed inside of you and until, and this is my own perspective, until you've allowed your ego to inflate a little bit. My perspective is the ego is neither good or bad. It's just something that can help you feel good about yourself. So why not utilize it? Why not uh, use it as something in your life to help you feel better? So if you're not doing this stuff for yourself, working on your self-worth, working on your self-esteem, inflating that ego to the point where you feel good about yourself, not where you are self-aggrandizing and becoming egotistical, but to the point where you no longer feel unworthy. I think that's a great way to think about it is if you are not filling that ego to the point where you no longer feel unworthy or unimportant or with low self-esteem, the ego actually helps you in filling this ego. And I'll give you the example I've used on my show a couple times before. When I was in high school, I had a low perception of myself. I didn't think I was, in fact, I knew you know, quote, knew I wasn't very smart. I knew I wasn't a jock. So I didn't fit in with that crowd. I knew I wasn't smart. I didn't fit in with that crowd. I wasn't even uh, mechanically inclined. So I didn't fit in with that crowd. I did fit into the computer crowd, but that was a very small percentage in the 80s. And I had a very tiny amount of friends that understood that world. But I was very isolated in high school and such. And one day, I saw a muscle car. <laughs> they were selling it in town. And I was like, wow, that's an awesome car. I wish I had that car. It would make me feel so good. I don't think I used those words back then. I just wanted to maybe show off or something, you know, because uh, what else did I have to show off? So I saw that car and it was in a range that my mom said she would help me afford, you know, pay for. And um, we ended up buying it. And when I drove it to school, I suddenly became popular. Not very popular, but popular because I wasn't popular before. I was just that long haired skater guy, you know, the skateboarder. And suddenly I'm popular. Suddenly people are coming up to me going, Oh my God, is that your car? Where'd you get that car? And other people would say, I saw that car. I wanted that car and you got it. <laughs> so all of these people were coming up and inflating my ego. And it felt great. It felt really, really good because I hadn't felt that way before. And I had a dysfunctional upbringing. I, I lived in an alcoholic home. My stepfather was drunk every day. I don't remember a day he wasn't drunk. And so I had a perception of the world that wasn't very healthy. I developed a lot of toxic behaviors myself that I brought into my adult relationships. And um, when I was a teenager, even though I had that car, I still had toxic behaviors about me. So when I was in relationships as a teenager, which I really only had one major relationship as a teenager, 
I brought those toxic behaviors that I developed into that relationship, my jealousy, my possessiveness, uh, lack of boundaries, you know, behaviors that hurt me as well, and not having a good, solid, healthy foundation uh, of self-worth, self-esteem, and also a healthy amount of ego, I felt pretty low. And, you know, I carried around also a fear of abandonment. I get a lot of emails regarding a fear of abandonment as well. And because I didn't have a lot of self-worth and a lot of confidence in myself, and I didn't have the loving home that some others might have had, not that mine was so miserable that I'm in a psychiatric ward, but that could have happened too. But um, I was able to be resilient enough to get through that, but I never let go of the toxic behaviors until my late 30s, early 40s. And I still worked on it in my 40s. I'm almost 50 now, so I've had some time. But working on this stuff throughout life until you finally find the behaviors that aren't necessarily helpful to you uh, can take a while. So give yourself a break if you're working on this stuff. But uh, coming back to the ego, when I got that car and people were praising the car and praising me going, wow, I can't believe it and girls were starting to look at me, I thought, this is amazing. This is incredible. And all it took was a car. I no longer felt like the long-haired hippie skateboarder. I felt cool. And I had that car for a few months, and uh, then I ended up selling it to one of my friends because there were transmission issues, and there was a dent I was never going to fix, and I loved it, but I didn't want it to break down on me one day, so I sold it to a friend. And excuse me for saying, but he just beat the hell out of it. (laughs) He just revved it up everywhere, burning out everywhere. And eventually the transmission crashed and all that stuff. I don't know exactly what happened to it, but uh, I never saw it again. But the good news was I was able to, it sounds so weird when I say this, inflate my ego to the point where I felt good about myself. That doesn't get rid of all my toxic behaviors and all my dysfunctions, but at least it brought me onto a new platform, a new foundation that I could feel good in me. That's a whole different feeling than I was carrying before. Walking around school, you know, high school, not feeling like I fit in everywhere. Suddenly I felt like I fit in just from inflating my ego a little bit. And this is sort of what I'm saying now is that when you allow your ego to inflate to the point where it makes you feel good about yourself, but not overinflate to the point where you feel superior over others, because that's a different level. But if you allow it to inflate where you feel good about yourself and you have some confidence in you, it equates to self-worth and self-esteem. And after I got rid of that car, that, that ego inflation stayed. It was a good, healthy ego inflation. And so it stayed and I didn't need the car anymore. Now I could walk around feeling like I had that car, feeling like I was that guy because I became that guy. And I think it's important to understand that when you grow up with people that don't have these good feelings about themselves inside of them, then what could they possibly pass on to you? You know, my mom felt how she felt about herself when I was younger, my stepfather felt the way he felt about himself and my dad felt the way he felt about himself and all of their feelings about themselves 
I absorbed through their parenting, through the way they took care of me, through the way they handled their lives, through the way they handled their relationships. This is what we do. We absorb our parents, our caretakers, and those around us in how they treat us and how they treat others. But where that comes from is how they feel about themselves. That's not the only source, but that is a huge part of it. How you feel about yourself will be sprinkled onto those around you, especially those that you have some sort of attachment to and they have some sort of attachment to you, children especially, but you know, significant others as well, family members as well. How you feel about yourself is typically how you'll treat others. It's not one-to-one. It's not a perfect ratio. It's not a perfect, like, I treat myself badly, so I treat others badly. It's not like that. It's kind of the equation of how I feel about myself will end up being how I behave. Now, it might fly in the face of people-pleasing if you think of someone who's always pleasing, always giving, Uh, to the point where they are burning out, they're always in deficit, emotional deficit, and they're just doing their best to try to be that person, try to be liked and try to be loved, and be that person that um, shows up for others. When somebody like that comes along, you might think, well, that person must do that for themselves too. That person must take care of themselves pretty well. At least according to what Paul said, (laughs) is that these people must feel giving to themselves. And typically the opposite is true. With the people pleaser, they don't feel giving to themselves because giving to themselves isn't giving them the reward that they want. What they might feel, however, is a fear of abandonment or a fear of rejection, a fear of not being liked or not being loved. And when you carry those things around, what behavior comes out of you that others may dislike? And this is where we get into how we are treated by others is based on what's inside of them. So if you have the people pleaser that's giving to you and he's trying to please you and they're trying to do everything for you and they're overly helpful and they're overly caring and always at your side trying to do the best they can for you, but it's annoying to you, you can almost see that as a compensation for what they're not doing for themselves. And again, I would also point at the ego where the person who is people pleasing, overly giving, uh, overly helpful, and it comes from a place of wanting to be liked or loved, then they may need to work on inflating that ego in a healthy way. And I've talked about this before, so I won't get into it too much, but there are different ways you can inflate the ego. And one of them is, you know, becoming good at something and impressing yourself along with others, becoming proud of yourself or perfecting something, or becoming an expert at something. Showing off is a great way to inflate the ego, believe it or not. So if you're really good at something, like throwing a yo-yo back and forth, some people can do it really well, and it can be impressive to some people. And even doing that with kids can inflate your ego. If you are good at a yo-yo and you start doing tricks in front of this kid, they're going to be really impressed. Or you know how to juggle or do magic things like that. So it's really up to you how you do that if you even want to. This is totally up to you, of course. But if there's any feelings of low self-worth, low self-esteem, not feeling loved, not feeling important, then this is one way to start boosting that inside of you or any aspect of that inside of you 
is to find ways you'd be proud of yourself by inflating that ego in a healthy way. And especially if you've not experienced the kind of love and support and caring and role modeling that you should have received growing up, but didn't. And so back to my point of you're not going to get what's not inside someone and you will especially get what somebody feels about themselves only in a way that they are expressing it. And coming back to the people pleaser, the people pleaser is giving and kind and caring and compassionate, but they're a little overly so. And they're a little too much pushing your boundaries sometimes, even though they may not agree with that, uh, some of them, because you might not want anyone to help you or be overly helpful, yet they keep doing it and they keep showing up and they're a little bit invasive. Not all people pleasers, you know, I was there too. But there are people that are looking for validation, looking for someone to be grateful and thankful to help them feel good about themselves. But the people pleaser is showing you a behavior that is not necessarily in them. It's just expressed this way. Whatever dysfunction or toxic elements they were exposed to as a child and growing up, uh, then that gets expressed in certain ways through their behavior. And the reason I'm telling you this, and this episode is not about people pleasers, it's just about dysfunction and toxicity in general about how people show up. The reason I'm telling you this is because, like I said, I get a lot of letters about someone's own self-worth, self-esteem, and especially their fears, their fear of abandonment, their fear of rejection. And these fears manifest from how we grew up, what we were exposed to, but what we were exposed to, and this is the important part, what we were exposed to, the people and relationships and their communication styles, all of that comes from a source of what's inside those people and has nothing to do with you. You were there. You were in the formula. You were in the mix. Absolutely. You were in the family, the friendship, the group, whatever it was. You were there, but you were the target of their upbringing. You are not the definition of their expression. And let me explain that a little bit. When someone says you're a bad person, you're not lovable, or they'll say it in worse, much worse ways to make you feel bad, then you have to remember that's not about you. It's about them getting something from making you feel that way. And you may think, but I thought this person loved me, or I thought this person supports me, or I thought this person was supposed to support me because they're in this role. They're in the mom role, the dad role, or the best friend role, or the family role. Whatever it is, whatever should you might have inside of you of how they should have treated you isn't about you. Some people know this, some people don't. That's why I'm iterating this in a way to make sure that everyone listening, especially you, knows that someone else's mistreatment of you is not your fault. It is not who or what you are. It isn't even based on your behavior. And let me say this, your behavior is the trigger. Yes, it is the stimuli that triggers someone else to behave the way they do. But in order for them to behave the way they do, it has to be in there. So even if you behaved badly, we've all probably done it one time or another, some of us more than others. Even if you behave badly, their response is still about them. They may say, you were a jerk. 
And you might acknowledge that inside of you. Oh my God, yes, I was. Or maybe not. No, I wasn't. You were the jerk. Absolutely. You may feel that way as well. But how they respond, how they express themselves in that moment is still about them because what's inside them to make them say that, it has to be some sort of reference to what that means to them. So what they say, you may agree with because usually this is what happens when you feel bad about something someone said to you, it's usually because there's a small part of you or a big part of you that agrees with what they said about you. And if somebody says you're an idiot and you don't agree with that at all, you're not going to feel bad. Think about that. (laughs) Think about this. If somebody came up and said, you're an idiot. If you have any of that feeling about yourself already, then what happens is it reinforces that inside of you. What they're saying is still not about you. It's about what's inside of them. They may have been called an idiot. They may think they're superior and smart. However, they're expressing is a manifestation of what's going on in them. But however you receive it is a manifestation of how you feel already about yourself. So anyone that comes along and says, you know what, you're an idiot, or I don't love you, or I never loved you, all of these things that can be very hurtful, have to connect with something inside of you. It has to complete the circuit, so to speak. It's sort of like jumper cables between two cars. You have one car that has the electricity and you plug it into the other car and the other car has to have the same connections. It has its own battery. So the positive to the positive, the negative to the negative, and now you can start the car that was dead. It's the same idea, even though this might not be the best analogy. It's the same idea if you have a negative, for lack of a better term, energy inside of you, something you feel about yourself, something you believe about yourself, if that's in there and somebody comes along and reinforces that negative energy inside of you, that thought or that feeling or that belief, then it becomes more real, more strong inside of you. This is why the other person doesn't really matter when it comes to personal growth and healing and learning and growing. They don't really matter. They just highlight what's going on inside of you. You know, we hear that people become a reflection of who we are, and it's pretty true. If somebody comes along and we feel something about ourselves when they say or do something, It reinforces how we already feel about ourselves. So that is like them being a mirror to what's going on inside of us. And because of that, that's why self-improvement is more important than, for example, working on a relationship. Now, this may sound opposite of what I talk about sometimes, but yes, you should work on your relationship. Absolutely. Only after you've worked on some primary components in yourself. And those primary components are everything I've already said, self-worth, self-esteem, self-love, self-care, self-compassion, and anything you think or believe about yourself that is probably not true, especially if it's a negative belief. Oh, I'm not smart enough. Oh, I'm not good enough. Oh, I'm not lovable. I'm not attractive. I'm too fat. I'm too thin. No one likes bald people. No one likes people with long hair. Whatever that belief that's running through your head that is heard through self-talk, inner dialogue, that has to be improved. That has to be worked out inside of you so that no matter what anyone says or does, even though they can still be hurtful, it doesn't reinforce it inside of you. 
I think that's the most important part. We have to remember, or at least ask ourselves, what am I reinforcing when this person does or says this? Because that's what's happening. Someone can call you a blithering idiot. And if you feel bad in any way, what is it reinforcing inside of you? Now, this doesn't mean there aren't people that surprise you like someone you love and trust. And now you feel a sense of betrayal. I think that's a little different. If somebody says, you're an idiot and they've never said that before. You've never felt that from them before. And suddenly they say it. That's a breach of trust. That's a breach of safety. That's a different feeling. That's like a surprise because maybe you never felt that way about yourself. And to hear somebody else say it, whoa, that's a different talk for another day. What I'm talking about is when someone actually says something that you might believe about yourself or feel or think about yourself and you feel bad about that. And now you're stuck with it, carrying that feeling with you, even though what they said, and this is my original point, what they said comes from how they feel about themselves in some way, shape or form. Whatever is going on inside of them gets expressed through them to you in a way that can be hurtful. And my final thought about this in this segment is that when you grow up with people that didn't have the best upbringing themselves or the feelings of self-worth and self-esteem and self-love and self-care about themselves, those internal thoughts, feelings, and beliefs inside of them about themselves manifest into how they treat you. And the reason I'm talking about this today is because I received this email that I'm going to read uh, portions of in the next segment from someone who basically didn't get any care or love or support, and maybe in some ways, but not in all the important ways, when she was growing up. She had the narcissistic parent and the golden child sibling, and uh, no one really supported her, even when she grew up and she's an adult and she feels all this anti-support, people still not liking her and extended family not liking her and she's trying to deal with this and reconcile all this stuff and she's still affected by it and when you're affected by that stuff what needs to happen isn't to better the relationship with those people it's to better the relationship with yourself so that those people when they show up as toxic you recognize it you can look at someone and go oh they're showing up as a toxic person no matter where it came from, you could tell yourself all day long, well, they're a victim of this and their parents did that and they were hurt in this way and abused in that way. It may all be true and you can have compassion about it, but never use it as an excuse for them to mistreat you. And when they mistreat you, that's when you stand up for yourself and you have to say, look, I don't know what's going on in your life, but I don't want to be a part of that. So I'm going to move on and whatever you need to do, you need to do. If you ever want to have a good conversation and you don't want to insult me, I'll be happy to have that conversation. But for now, I need to move on in my life because there's something going on with you. I don't know what it is and I hope you are able to get through it, but I need to move on and you don't internalize it. It may still hurt. It may affect you in many ways, but you don't internalize it and hold it inside of you and make it a belief about yourself because that reinforces the negative energy that you may have been holding on to, and you can't look at someone else and say, until they change, I won't feel better because that leaves that open loop, that unfinished feeling until that person changes, I won't feel better. You'll never be happy. You'll never feel better. This is why it's important to work on yourself, do the self-love, self-care, self-compassion, work on that ego 
work on your confidence, work on all the areas of your life that need to be increased or improved upon so that when someone toxic comes along, whether you know them or not, you can say to yourself, I know myself and what they said is not true. I know myself well enough that what they feel about me is not true. I know myself so well to see that their behavior is trying to hurt me in some way, but it can only hurt me if I believe what they're saying about me. If you don't believe what someone's saying about you, you can't be hurt. I know that's hard to hear. And like I said, the only exception is betrayal. If you love and trust someone and they've never betrayed you, they've never deceived you or lied to you, and suddenly they lie, that's a different thing. That's a breach of confidence and trust and safety and security. But in all other cases, when someone says something insulting or doesn't support you, doesn't go to your birthday party, doesn't go to your wedding, which is part of this email I'm going to read, and you're insulted in some way, I know it's hard, but don't make it about you. Make it about them. Make it about their burden that they're carrying that you shouldn't have to carry too. And that means working on yourself staying away from the toxic elements in your life and raising all your levels of self-worth and self-esteem, always working on that, even though it can be tough because certain people you'd want to show up better in your life, but if they can't, then they can't. If they don't know how, they're not going to know how. They have to learn on their own time and then call you up one day and say, whoa, I can't believe how I've been treating you all this time. I'm so sorry. And sometimes you have to wait until you get that kind of call. And sometimes that call never happens, which is why it's so important to continue being the best version of you you can possibly be and trying to get rid of all the negative beliefs that you have about yourself. Of course you're lovable. Of course you're smart. Of course you're all the good things. You may not be smart enough to fly a shuttle. I don't know. Maybe you are. You may not be good enough to do a double backflip. Maybe you are. I don't know. There's always going to be limitations here and there, but those limitations are never about who you are at your core. I don't care if you can't program a spreadsheet or crochet an Afghan or anything like that. It doesn't matter. Those are just skill limitations. Who you are at your core, as long as you want to continually show up in the world as moral as you can be, as ethical as you can be, doing the right thing, trying to be nice to people, sometimes it's hard, and uh, following every good path that you can find. And of course, working on yourself, always trying to improve yourself so that you show up as the best person you can be for others, then you are already a good person. And anyone that can't recognize it, they need to work on themselves. They don't need to point it out in you. They need to work on themselves so they can step out of judgment and realize that something inside of them keeps them hurting others. I'm not saying you should blame them for how they're showing up, but yeah, maybe a little bit. <laughs> we'll be right back after this. You know, I was doing an interview yesterday. I was on someone's podcast and um, she asked me the question, what do we do about all this new anxiety coming up because of what's going on in the world today? And that was a tough question because 
Uh, what's going on in the world today can be very scary for a lot of people. But I realized how many resources we have nowadays. I mean, compare this to 10, 20 years ago. If you wanted therapy, you had to call up, make an appointment, show up and pay them a lot of money and then maybe show up once a week. And that was the therapeutic model back then. And it's a good model. It's still a good model today. No complaints about that whatsoever. But today there's just more available. There's more resources and some very affordable and some with um, the ability to reach out more than once a week. In fact, anytime you want, you can send a message to a counselor or a therapist. Now, again, this may not fall under the typical business model of therapy, but it is how BetterHelp works. BetterHelp is a more affordable model than traditional offline counseling. What it is, is you sign up on this website, betterhelp.com, and make sure you put forward slash brain so you can get the 10% off I talked about at the beginning of the show. But you go to betterhelp.com forward slash brain, and you choose the counselor that works for you and what you're working on, and you can start communicating in under 24 hours. And this is where you can connect in a safe and private online environment. And the form you fill out assesses your needs and matches you with your own licensed professional therapist. You know, I used to do email coaching and that was the perfect way for some people to connect with me because it helped them feel anonymous. It helped them feel comfortable and protected in their own space. So they would type me an email and I would respond and we go back and forth. Well, BetterHelp is that and more. Not only can you do that through their messaging system, which is all confidential, it's all secure, but you can also do it through video or phone sessions as well. I mean, the landscape has changed. And BetterHelp is, in my opinion, at the forefront of that landscape. I've never seen a setup quite like this. I was in their system. I used it. I talked to a few of their counselors. And it is just a fantastic system. I highly recommend if you are dealing with depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, trauma, sleeping, anger issues, family conflicts, even LGBT matters, check out their testimonials on their website. You know, this is a convenient, professional, affordable place that you can start getting help right away. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash brain, set yourself up an account, and you'll soon learn what's preventing you from achieving your goals and what's interfering with your happiness. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a TOB listener, get 10% off the first month by visiting betterhelp.com forward slash brain. Join over 800,000 people already taking charge of their mental health. Betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com forward slash brain. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Overwhelmed Brain. I told you I was going to read bits and pieces of that email. I will do that momentarily, but I just want to come on here and thank you for listening and also thank our sponsor today, BetterHelp.com. If you go to BetterHelp, those two words, Better and Help, H-E-L-P.com forward slash brain, you'll get 10% off your first month. Definitely, I highly recommend you check them out. I've vetted them, I've talked with them, and I highly recommend their service. So thank you, BetterHelp. And I also want to thank the patron members for supporting the show at patron.theoverwhelmedbrain.com. They are the backbone of this show that continues to grow because of their support. And of course, anyone listening that's sent a donation or even a thank you or 
just left a great review on iTunes or other podcast players. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for your support of this show. And if you find value in this show and you want to give back, head over to patron.theoverwhelmedbrain.com. And you can subscribe monthly if you want to be a part of that. You can also give a one-time donation. And also, if you're in the patron program, I give back as well. Lots of private episodes in there, free workbooks, discounts on my products and services, all over at patron.theoverwhelmedbrain.com. Thank you, patron members. I appreciate you. I also want to remind you of the Love and Abuse podcast. You know, we talked about toxic relationships and toxic family members and toxic this and toxic that. That show really covers the gamut of toxic communication and poisonous behavior and, of course, emotional abuse and other things that you find very difficult to deal with in relationships. If you're interested in learning more about that, head over to loveandabuse.com and listen to the podcast. And my last thank you goes to Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com for some of the music transitions in The Overwhelmed Brain. And like I said, I'm going to read you bits and pieces of this email that inspired today's episode. And that is uh, from someone who calls herself a professional owner of her business. And she's been struggling with depression and anxiety since she was a child. She comes from a narcissistic family background where her father was in prison uh, most of her teenage life. And her mother is very covert in that she was never around or present, meaning although she lived in the home, she never made sure that uh, she supported her with basic necessities such as food and uh, never once did homework with her and was always either sleeping in a room or having an affair with another guy. And this all happened until this uh, person who wrote this said uh, she was in her 20s and um, she was also deemed a scapegoat from a very young age and has a sister that is also the golden child, meaning she could get away with anything. She could do no wrong. At least that's my interpretation of golden child. And uh, one specific situation has always stuck in her head that when she was um, a young teenager, she found photos in her mother's car that were of her and a man that she didn't recognize. She said, I brought this information to my dad while on a prison visit. And he began screaming at me, telling me that I was a liar and my mother also denied any wrongdoing and blamed my father for being in prison and saying that I was acting out because he was away. That was one of the biggest blows to me receiving validation and was a huge turning point in my life. My mother then began taking me to a psychiatrist to be placed on antidepressants and placed me in counseling for all these demons, as she called them, and the subtle manipulations of making me feel crazy began. So there's a lot more here. I'm just going to read you a few highlights. But uh, she says, I began acting out as a teenager and I would yell and scream. And my mother and I got into several altercations. I punched holes in the wall. I was in juvenile detention centers as she was always telling me that that's where I belonged. And she made me believe all these terrible things about myself. So in the end, I had to grow up. I had to raise myself. I had to put myself through college. I had three jobs and I eventually met my now husband, and I recently went no contact after I accomplished a huge goal that I had set out for myself 10 years prior. My husband and I began planning our wedding at the end of that year. And I mentioned to my mother that we were planning the wedding. And she said, you can't plan your wedding for that time because your sister is planning hers. I told her, well, so long as it was not on the same day, why would that matter? And this really upset my mom. And she gave me the silent treatment for four months. At which she then sent me a kind mother-to-daughter poem about love and below it she wrote how dare you inconvenience all of us when the winter time is dedicated to your sister you are selfish 
I made the mistake of having an anxiety attack and telling her that she didn't have to come because I was marrying my husband and not her and that I was not asking anything of her or anyone in my family but to be present. She then called my sister and told her of our plans and my sister began texting me very nasty things and had her now husband attack me via text message by saying, no one in our family even likes you because you have caused so much grief and you're no longer wanted in our lives. And at that point, she decided to go no contact with all her family members and her sister and her mother and her father. And um, she says, the long story short, I am struggling with depression and anxiety that comes and goes. And I have a lot to comment on a lot of the things that she said, but I'm going to go right to her question and see what I can do with this first. My questions are all of the bad memories, which is about 95% of my life, along with the guilt of how I handled things and feeling out of control and stuck in an emotional prison continue to play in my head constantly like a track that doesn't stop. How do I get these memories and situations to stop playing in my head? All right, let me answer that first. She has some more questions here, but the first question is, how do I get these memories to stop? How do I get these situations to stop playing in my head? A, don't resist them. I know we want to resist them. We want to push them back. We don't want to play them over and over again, but play them. And this is going to sound a little strange. And if this is too much for you, then definitely seek professional support on this. But my approach to this is anything that bothers you, something that replays over and over again, I like to bring up and play at a higher level, at a higher volume, at the most upsetting visualization I can create. So hear me out. <laughs> what we're doing here is instead of resisting it, we're amplifying it. And this is not a good feeling, but we, you have memories, right? If all these memories that you shared with me, plus more that you have, I'm sure. So bring up the bad ones and replay them. Let them play out. In fact, let them play out not only the memory, but the point before the memory started and the point after. I mean, that doesn't sound right. Let's put it this way. There's something that happened before the bad stuff. What I mean by that is, let's just say you're driving along in your car and you get a flat tire and that kind of ruins your day. So you have to pull over and change the flat before the flat. You didn't have a flat before the flat. You were probably having a good day. So when you replay these memories, what I want you to do is remember what happened before things got bad. You may have to go back five minutes. You might have to go back five days or longer. Maybe it's been bad most of your life, but what I want you to do is remember that time before things got bad. If you can do it on the, on the same day, it's helpful. So you're having a good day and then suddenly your mom says this or your mom does that or your sister does this or whatever. So when you replay these, add the beginning, what happened before that, and add the end, what happened after that. And what I'm trying to do is sandwich these negative emotions between two positive ones. Can you visualize that? Because you can take a negative memory from your past and go, oh, that was the worst day of my life. I hated it. Now let's sandwich that negative memory with something positive that happened before. It could have been five days before. Hey, I got a raise at my job. I remember that. And then a few days later, this bad thing happened. And then after that bad thing, a few days later, I met this wonderful person. So now we're sandwiching that memory. We're expanding it because when we replace stuff, it's usually a, a moment in time. 
Because when we replay the negative memories in our life, in our brain, we usually snip out that moment of time. And we're not thinking about all the good that happened before and any of the good that happened after. We're only thinking of the bad stuff. So why not expand it, sandwich it between two positive memories so that at least it's not the only thing you think about. I'm not saying that's the solution. I'm not saying, okay, once you do this, everything's going to be great. This is just step one. Step one is to sandwich those memories with the before and the after. And when you sandwich those memories, it changes the memory a bit. It may still be the worst thing that's ever happened or something terrible, but at least it's not only something terrible. You're starting to mix it in like um, pouring water in grape juice. Eventually, you'll mix enough water in there and it'll start to decrease the color of the grape juice. I'm not saying you need to flood out the bad memories with good memories. That would be handy, but that's not necessarily what this exercise is about. It's just a matter of sandwiching them, making the memories a little bit longer, a little bit more uh, dynamic, so it's not only negative. And when you do that, it changes some feelings about it. It may still be very negative. It may still be very traumatic. I'm not saying that all this goes away, but this is step one. Step two is something I've talked about a long time ago. Uh, I don't think I've talked about this in a while, but something I learned in NLP, uh, Neuro Linguistic Programming, when you have a memory that's bad, add something to the memory. Add an element that wasn't there before. And what I mean by that is, let's just say that uh, you got a real bad spanking when you were a kid and you can't forget it. For some reason, I forget all my spankings, but I remember one in particular. I remember one where my dad pulled his belt off and gave me a good wallop. Now, let's just say that I had trauma around that. I don't really think about that. It doesn't really negatively affect me now, but let's just say it did. Let's just say I had trauma about that, and I felt like I was an unlovable kid and that I was hated. All right, so I would ask myself, what about that memory makes me feel unlovable? And I might come up with, well, my dad is hitting me. All right, well, let's find some details about this. What is your dad hitting you with? Well, my dad is hitting me with a belt. All right, so what if we change this a little bit? What if he was hitting you with a, a kangaroo's tail? Something like that, where there's a kangaroo there and he just grabbed the kangaroo's tail and he's hitting you with it. Does that change how it feels or how you remember that? Well, of course it changes how I remember that, but that's not what happened. Well, that's okay. Just go along for this ride. This is what we want to do. When we have a memory that replays over and over again, we need to introduce new elements because that record will never change until we do. And some people don't want to change the elements. They say, well, that's not how it happened. I want to remember exactly how it happened. Or they may not say that to themselves. It just happens that way. I keep remembering exactly how it happens. Yes, but you also have the ability to add new elements to the memory, which change how you feel about it. Because if you play the same traumatic memory over and over and over, you're going to feel the same trauma. You're going to feel the same emotions. It's going to be attached to that memory. So changing the memory can change the trauma. It can change the emotions. So I might talk to myself, so your dad's hitting you with this kangaroo tail. And I might say, that's ridiculous. I, I mean, the kangaroo would turn around and wallop him. Well, if you want to add that to the memory, that's fine with me. <laughs> and so I might see that. Uh, or let's just say that didn't happen. 
and um, let's just say that I still have trauma about it. Well, I still feel like my dad doesn't love me. I might ask, well, what makes you think your dad doesn't love you? Now, remember, I didn't sandwich this negative memory between two positives like I told you earlier, but I could have. Because if I did, I might find, oh, my dad does love me because he did this one day or he did that. Not that I'm depending on that, but because I didn't add those elements, I'm so focused on the negative element. I'm so focused on that one moment in time that I don't see anything else. I don't see the positive. I only remember the negative and it's reinforced inside of me because like I was saying earlier, there must be a part of me that believes that. So anyway, I ask myself, well, what makes you think he doesn't love you? And I might say, well, because someone who loves me wouldn't hurt me like that, wouldn't use that kind of force on their child. And then I might kind of try to make myself laugh and say, you mean with a kangaroo tail? And I might laugh about that, or I may say, no, that's not really what happened. But I guarantee you, the memory is starting to change a little bit. Just a little, this little change in the visual that you used. It's helping you change the memory a little bit, which helps to change the emotion a little bit. Okay, so I still have these negative thoughts. Well, if he loved me, he wouldn't have done that. I might actually challenge that question. So you're saying that people who love their children will never use a physical type of punishment. And I might answer, well, I know there are times in my life that I've deserved it because I did, you know, something bad. And I know there are other parents that might use it that uh, certainly they love their kids, but they want to warn them. So I'm, you know, challenging that. But I also want to come back to changing the memory. So I might ask, okay, so what if your dad said, I hate to do this to you because I love you? then I would say, what? That doesn't make any sense. That just sounds like an excuse that he wants to hit me anyway. You know, I might challenge that back. But then I might say, okay, let's just say this. What if after he went into his bedroom and shut the door and felt guilty for hours? Well, that doesn't really make me feel better, but that does make me think of the memory differently. I'm not saying you have to go this direction. I'm not saying you have to add all these other elements. I'm really mainly concerned with the visuals and the sounds of those of that memory. But I like to challenge things sometimes. I like to get a different perspective and try to reframe the memory a little bit. If he went into his bedroom and felt really guilty, why would he feel guilty? Well, because he loves you or because he really hated doing that or because he has no other way to express himself and teach you something because that's how he was taught. And so suddenly I might feel a little bit more compassion And I might make it a little less about me. And that can be helpful. You know, I know this doesn't work with everything. And you may not come to these same conclusions. But I think it can be helpful to challenge those thoughts that might come up about that moment in time. But you're coaching yourself through it. You're challenging yourself at every moment. Now, this doesn't work for every parent. Some parents, like the person I just read their email very narcissistic mom, you're not going to find too many redeeming qualities, I'm sorry to say, especially if you weren't the golden child. But the point is to take the focus off of you being the bad person, you being the wrong person, you being the unlovable person. You take the focus off of that and the reframe helps you get into their space. Not that what they did was even forgivable. I'm not saying you have to forgive them. I'm just saying you have to put yourself into that space so that you have a different perspective and realize, oh, it's really not about me in that moment. 
I might have triggered them, I might have been the stimulus for them, but whatever is going on inside of them at their core is what's happening to me. I just happen to be the recipient of the, the pain or the hurt, but it's really not about me. And that's, I understand, very tough to get to. That perspective is, is, it can be a challenge to get to. But let me go back to this step two, which is adding the visual or adding the sounds that make the memory different. Let's just say that he had that kangaroo tail, and I also visualized him wearing a cowboy hat and uh, wearing cowboy boots and wearing a tutu or something. Or he had lipstick on with his beard, you know, something that would make me laugh about who he was. In my mind, my dad never looked like that. My dad never even had a beard from what I recall. Actually, he did in pictures, but I never knew him as that when I was younger. So now I picture him with a beard and lipstick, wearing a tutu with a cowboy hat and cowboy boots. And uh, suddenly my image of him hitting me with a kangaroo tail, it is starting to replace the bad memories. It's starting to replace the trauma. Again, this isn't to repress the trauma or hide it or anything like that. I'm just helping you disconnect some traumatic or post-traumatic stress that can come from having this memory pop up. Especially if you replay it over and over again or if you've been to therapy over and over again and you can't get that memory out of your head, well, let's do something about it. Let's change it a little bit. This isn't about avoiding the pain or not addressing it. It's usually something that gets replayed and you feel like you're in a rut and you can't get anywhere with it, you might as well try something like this. And I tell you what, it almost always works. If you really play this full on, it almost always works. And um, the sound aspect, you know, I talked about the visuals. Okay, this person's wearing their tutu and the cowboy hat and he's hitting me with a kangaroo tail. What other sounds can I put in there? Can I put the theme to the Smurfs cartoon in the background? Uh, or will that traumatize me more? Probably. Uh, let's try something else. Let's try um, Nutcracker Sweet. Dun, 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 dun. And uh, I can picture my dad in that outfit, listening to the Nutcracker Suite, and suddenly the entire memory is starting to shift. It's actually helpful if somebody else does this with you, but you can do this yourself. You absolutely can. It, because if you have somebody else do it, like, okay, now picture him doing this and picture her doing that. Uh, it surprises your mind. It becomes more memorable, but you can still do it yourself. Okay, I'm going to picture him wearing a wetsuit and a snorkel and a clown nose. You know, whatever works for you. You could just make this stuff up. And I'm going to have chariots of fire playing in the background. And uh, as he is hitting me with this kangaroo's tail or this giant thing of string cheese (laughs) that he's hitting me with. And the length of time it took me to explain all of this, you can do in pretty much seconds. But Even if you were playing along here with some traumatic memory that you were dealing with, changing it, what happens is when the record plays again, that old memory plays back, you're going to have a different feeling about it. You're going to see things differently about it. You're going to feel things differently about it. You're going to think about it differently. It's going to show up in your life differently so that the emotion that you used to come up with at that moment changes hopefully minimizes, maybe disappears. It's like that day in the grocery store when I was married and I said something to my wife that really ticked her off. I mean, it was a trigger that was in our relationship and um, I hadn't healed from it yet. And I brought it up and she was really ticked off. 
And from that moment forward that day, she wouldn't talk to me. She was just so angry. And I said, you know, I know I did something wrong and I'm sorry about that. I shouldn't have done that. And I asked her, okay, will you just try this? And I said, will you picture me saying that to you? But instead of my head, it's a donkey's head. And she did. And she laughed. And that was the first laugh I heard in hours. And then I said, okay, also picture me with the donkey's voice saying it. And she laughed some more. This doesn't change what happened, but it did help her get past that. And I'm not saying you can use this every time you make your partner angry or something like that. It's not a get out of jail free card. It was actually sort of an experiment at that time because I truly was sorry. I truly apologized. And she told me that she couldn't stop being angry about it and she wanted to. So I did it with a willing volunteer and it worked. We had other issues in the relationship that I needed to fix. I never did. And that's why we got a divorce. And then after my divorce, I learned everything about myself and was able to heal a lot of that stuff. But during that time, that was one of the things that I tried with her and uh, things that I tried with myself going through my own trauma and my own past it is certainly helpful. So that question, let me come back to this and finish this email, is how you stop replaying this stuff in your head, everything I just talked about. I hope that helps. And I'm going to answer these other questions really quick because we're running out of time. Um, you asked, how can I overcome the triggers of others because of the abuse that I received as a child? So, you know, I'm not going to discount professional therapy here. Of course not. Uh, and certainly if you haven't sought that yet, it's a great idea. Also, everything I'm talking about in this episode today, especially knowing that their dysfunction, their toxic behaviors weren't about you, it can be helpful. I'm not saying that's the solution and you're going to feel great, but maybe you'll feel better. You know, when I think about how my stepfather showed up in my life and he showed up in my sister's and brother's lives, I know that he is sick. I know that he is dysfunctional and very toxic and the alcohol actually amplified all of that stuff. Doesn't mean I forgive him. I have no problem not forgiving him, but I don't hold on to the negativity about him. It's more of an apathy. It's more of an, I don't care about him anymore. And that's a much better place than I'm so angry at him or I can't stop thinking about what he did. It's so much different. And it's because I've allowed these memories to come up and allowed myself to address them. And this is important. You don't want to repress this stuff. I spent my whole life repressing negative memories. And when you do that, it always comes out in destructive ways later. So allowing this stuff to come up so that you can address it and express it instead of repressing it and uh, turning it into depression and anxiety, because that's what happens. You take something negative and you suppress the thoughts around it and you repress the emotions about it and then you become depressed. That is something you want to avoid. And one of the ways that you do that is you don't allow yourself to repress it. You bring it up. And I know it's hard to bring it up and you have all these traumatic thoughts about it, but that's why I give you these little exercises and also the concept that it's really not about you, even though you were the target. You are the lovable, wonderful, important, significant, worthy person that you are. And other people come along and try to convince you otherwise. But you'll always be that person. You'll always be lovable and worthy and significant. And it's just a matter of you working on yourself to make sure that 
you figure out that that's true because I already know it is. It's not required that you hear me say that, but maybe you need to hear it. Maybe you do. Maybe this is what you need reinforced in you. You need reinforced that at your core, as long as you're working on yourself and you want to do the right thing and you have love in your heart and you want to feel that love, you're already there. You already have it. You are already worthy and important and lovable and deserve to be loved and deserve to be seen as the brilliant, intelligent person that you are. And anyone else who can't see it, they've got crap going on in their lives that you're just going to have to accept that they're not going to change. They are who they are. If they do change, that will be wonderful, but they are who they are. So that means you have to take care of you. And that when people show up in your life and say, no one in this family likes you, then that's their loss. It can be hard. I know because you want family. You want them to love you and you want them to see that you're trying to do the right thing and trying to be friends with everyone. But if they can't see it, it's their loss. And you own who you are and you own that you are a good person. And if they can't see it, then that's their problem, their loss. And when they're ready to see it, they can call you or show up one day and say, oh, I didn't realize how badly I was treating you until now. And I'm so sorry. And you do that by owning who you really are at your core, who, who that person is underneath. You're trying to do all the right things. You're trying to do good. You got to own that. And it's easier to own that when you have a bigger ego. <laughs> it sounds so strange to say that still, but when you have a bigger ego, it's easier to own that you're all that. And so the other questions that she asked, I kind of answered throughout the episode. So I'm just going to close the show here by telling you to keep an open mind, no matter what. This will help you step into your power. It also helps you be firm in your decisions and actions so that you can create the life you want. Always take steps to grow and evolve. You are powerful beyond measure. And above all, and this is something I absolutely know to be true about you, you are amazing. Amazing.